Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of drug use, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the night of September 7, 1996, Tupac Shakur rolled down the windows of Suge Knight's new BMW and took a deep breath. They were having a great time in Las Vegas. The beats of Tupac's album in progress, the Don Killuminati, The Seven Day Theory, filled the car. Tupac nodded along to his lyrics describing the current state of the coastal rap rivalry. It's not about East or West, power and money, riders and punks. Which side are you on? Just then, the car pulled to a stop at a traffic light. A white Cadillac coasted up and rolled down its windows. Tupac turned his head to see a 40 caliber Glock pointed straight at him. The assailant squeezed the trigger. Immediately, Suge swooped in to shield Tupac as a dozen shots rained down on their BMW. A few seconds later, the Cadillac sped away. Tupac looked down and saw the blood pouring from his body. Immediately, Suge slammed on the gas pedal. They raced in the direction of the hospital, but it was little use. Tupac was about to become one of the most famous fatalities of the 90s vicious East versus West Coast music rivalry. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our third episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures more unpleasant pages of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we're diving into the 1990s East Coast versus West Coast rap rivalry. In this short span of time, Rap and hip-hop took center stage in the music industry, with artists like LL Cool J and Mary J. Blige dominating the Billboard charts. Meanwhile, an intense rivalry developed between East and West Coast rappers, most notably the notorious B.I.G., Tupac Shakur, and their respective labels. Their bitter feud and tragic deaths still resonate decades later, marking a dark chapter in 90s music. We'll dig into the origins of the rivalry right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Rap rivalries are deeply embedded in the origins of the genre itself. Old school hip hop, where modern rap originates, first developed at 1970s block parties in New York's South Bronx. MCs would joke around and rhyme over the records they played. By the 1980s, these playful verses had evolved into underground rap battles on the streets. Competitors took turns delivering freestyle, rapid-fire lyrics, which included boasts about themselves. The winner received a small prize and, of course, bragging rights. The most famous early rap battle happened in December 1981 at the Harlem World Christmas Celebration in New York City and it featured what may be the genre's first rivalry. While on stage, comedic rapper Busy B. Starsky began listing off all the MCs who couldn't possibly beat him. From the crowd, Cool Mo D heard Busy B. say his name. The smack talk angered him enough to approach the stage where he delivered a scathing response. Cool Modi's performance handily won the battle and set the stage for more rivalries to emerge throughout the 1980s. Rappers dropped diss tracks and insults as part of their ongoing feuds throughout the 80s. However, they didn't attract much public attention. The music industry still saw rap and hip-hop as an East Coast fad that would eventually fade. They couldn't have been more wrong. As the 1990s approached, both genres would solidify their place in popular music and on the West Coast. In the late 1980s, New York artists still regarded West Coast artists like MC Hammer as a poor imitation of East Coast rappers. Alternatively, West Coast rappers felt excluded from New York-based radio stations and DJs who didn't play their songs. All of that was poised to change. On May 28, 1991, the California gangster rap group N.W.A. introduced their sophomore album. Its release happened to coincide with a major change in how Billboard measured record popularity. Previously, Billboard counted sales reports from DJs and record store owners to compile their music charts. But in early 1991, the marketing research firm Nielsen developed a program that more accurately assessed which tracks were resonating with the public. And in June of 1991, the most popular record in America was N.W.A.'s new album. The group's triumph gave other L.A. rappers some clout, but still not the respect they craved from the East Coast. 
In fact, N.W.A.'s success angered Bronx rapper Tim Dog enough that he released an explicit diss track aimed at L.A.'s Compton neighborhood. His lyrics took aim at members of N.W.A., including Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and even Dre's then-fiancé, Michelle. It was clear that Tim Dog resented the West Coast rappers for stealing the East Coast spotlight. And Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Compton's Most Wanted, and other L.A. rappers replied with diss tracks of their own. This amplified the tensions between the coasts, but it only became a full-blown rivalry when two new rappers entered the scene. 20-year-old Tupac Shakur released his debut rap album, Tupacalypse Now, on November 12, 1991. The record sold half a million copies in the next four years and was certified gold in November 1995. Tupac instantly became the West Coast breakout rap star, and in 1992, he moved from Northern California to Hollywood. That same year, director John Singleton cast Tupac opposite Janet Jackson in the film Poetic Justice. While on set, Tupac played music on repeat by the up-and-coming East Coast rapper Biggie Smalls. 19-year-old Christopher Wallace, or Biggie Smalls, had released his demo Microphone Murderer back in 1991. Brooklyn DJs loved it, and in 1992, an editor from the Source Music magazine played Biggie's demo for a producer from Uptown Records, Sean Puffy Combs, also known as Puff Daddy, and now most commonly recognized as P. Diddy. By 1993, Puffy had signed Biggie to his label. The rapper immediately began working on his debut album. In the midst of recording, Biggie took a trip to Los Angeles. There, he scored an invite to a party hosted by none other than his rap idol, Tupac. 22-year-old Tupac was delighted to meet Biggie. He welcomed the East Coast rapper with open arms and a bottle of Hennessy cognac. From that night on, their friendship blossomed. The pair were mutual fans, and Tupac was determined to help Biggie reach the same level of success that he had experienced. He felt a special kinship with Biggie, inviting the burgeoning East Coast rapper to perform at his concerts. Tupac even bought Biggie his first Rolex watch. Biggie's debut album, Ready to Die, was released on September 13, 1994. But due to a copyright dispute, the 22-year-old wasn't able to perform under the name Biggie Smalls. Instead, he picked a new moniker that was larger than life, the notorious B.I.G. Ready to Die shot to number 13 on the Billboard Hot 200 chart and was certified double platinum within a year and one month of its release. By the end of 1999, it was certified four times platinum. The album spawned several hits, including Big Papa, which dominated the rap singles chart. The album's success marked another shift in rap, transferring attention away from the West Coast and back to the East. Tupac's fame seemed to be on the downswing. He later admitted his early success had made him lose focus. By 1994, he gained a reputation as a hothead who was difficult to work with, and he was involved in several assaults. Tupac served 15 days in jail in March of 1994 for assaulting one of the directors, Alan Hughes, on the set of the film Menace to Society. 
and a few months later, in November of 94, Tupac and three of his friends were put on trial for sexually assaulting a 19-year-old. Tupac claimed he had been set up. Allegedly, several associates of the East Coast music manager James Henchman Rosemond had participated in the sexual assault, but Tupac denied his own participation. Nonetheless, the legal fees drained Tupac's bank account. He began contributing verses to other rap songs for cash. One of these offers came from Puffy's label, Bad Boy Entertainment in New York. They offered Tupac $7,000 to record a verse for one of their artists, Tyrone Sean Wilkins, then best known as Little Sean. Shortly after midnight on November 30th, 1994, Tupac and three members of his entourage arrived at Quad Recording Studios in Times Square. Inside the lobby, Tupac immediately noticed three men that he didn't know. Tupac was suspicious, but also stoned, so he simply assumed the men worked with Biggie. Just then, Biggie's friend Lil Cease called down to the lobby. He told Tupac to come upstairs. Biggie and Puffy were recording and wanted to say hi. Tupac and his colleagues headed toward the elevator. But as soon as its doors opened, the other three men pointed their guns at them. They ordered Tupac and his posse to get down on the floor. Tupac refused. He reached for his own gun, but not fast enough. The assailants fired at him five times before robbing him and fleeing the scene. As he bled onto the lobby floor, Tupac knew that James Rosemond was behind this, and he was positive that Biggie and Puffy had known. Up next, the Quad Studios shooting brings the East Coast-West Coast rivalry to the forefront. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On November 30th, 1994, Biggie Smalls and Sean Puffy Combs were upstairs at Quad Studios when they heard gunshots. They rushed to the elevator. When the doors opened, a bloodied Tupac Shakur limped out. Unknown assailants had shot the West Coast rapper five times. Puffy later recalled showing Tupac nothing but love and concern. But Tupac remembered it differently. He claimed he saw surprise and guilt on Biggie and Puffy's faces. And as paramedics rolled Tupac's gurney into an ambulance, Tupac held up his middle finger at Biggie. Tupac vehemently believed that the East Coast music manager, James Henchman Rosemond, had orchestrated the shooting. Tupac was in the midst of a sexual assault scandal and had recently blamed it on Henchman's associates. The shooting must be retaliation, and he believed Biggie and Puffy had known about it. Years later, Henchman admitted responsibility for the shooting, but Biggie and Puffy would always deny any involvement. Biggie even went to visit Tupac in the hospital the night he was shot. Tupac underwent surgery for his wounds, but he insisted on checking himself out of the hospital afterwards. A few hours later, he showed up to Manhattan Criminal Court in a wheelchair. 
just in time to hear the verdict on his sexual assault case. A minimum of 18 months in prison, with a maximum of four and a half years. Bail was set at $1.4 million, far more than Tupac could afford. He would have to do his time. Meanwhile, Biggie's star continued to rise, but his next release, titled Who Shot Ya?, implied he was still thinking about Tupac's shooting. In addition to its conspicuous title, the track had several implicit lyrics, including the line, You rewind this, bad boys behind this. Tupac interpreted it to mean that Puffy and Biggie were hinting at responsibility for the shooting. Biggie and Puffy denied the song had anything to do with Tupac, but he was still angry. He would later remark to Vibe magazine, Biggie owed me more than to turn his head and act like he didn't know. The magazine would play an early role in Tupac and Biggie's rivalry. The pair never publicly spoke directly to each other about the shooting, but they discussed it through interviews with Vibe and dueling magazine covers. After Tupac graced the April 1995 cover, Biggie landed his own a few months later, further denying any involvement in Tupac's shooting. The interviews and magazine covers added fuel to the fire, pitting the rappers against each other while simultaneously adding to their fame. But as famous as Tupac was, he was still technically broke and in jail. That's when he turned to the CEO and co-founder of Death Row Records in L.A., Suge Knight. Tupac had worked with Suge on a few movie soundtracks, and the producer knew about Tupac's money troubles. It was a good deal for both parties. Death Row was interested in nabbing Tupac because their rival label was close to signing him. And Tupac saw Death Row as not only a source of potential cash flow, but protection. The pair banded together in March of 1995, and Suge sent Tupac $15,000 as proof of his interest. Suge also began flying from L.A. to upstate New York to regularly visit the rapper in prison, where he was still serving time for his sexual assault charge. Suge even had Death Row Records' attorney work on Tupac's case. More importantly, Tupac and Suge decided to join forces against Biggie, Puffy, and the Bad Boy label. During a prison visit in August of 1995, Tupac told Suge he was certain these three had been involved in the Quad Studio shooting. He wanted to take them down. Evidently, Suge agreed. That same night, he flew to New York City for the Source Hip Hop Music Awards. There, Suge won Soundtrack of the Year for producing the music to Above the Rim, a movie starring Tupac. In accepting the award, Suge gave shout-outs to his death row family and Tupac. He relayed a clear insult to East Coast labels, stating that any artists who wanted fame without their producers appearing in their music videos should come to death row. The crowd erupted in boos as Suge walked off stage, his arms high in the air like a victory stance. Down in the audience, Puffy must have had a feeling that the remark was aimed at him. At a club later that night, Puffy confronted Suge about the diss. But according to Puffy, Suge shrugged it off. He said he was referring to another producer, Jermaine Dupree, and that's where they left it. Even so, there was a new heightened tension between the coasts. A few weeks later, Biggie was due to perform in California, 
but Puffy worried for his safety. The producer allegedly arranged for Biggie's protection through the Crips, a gang founded in Los Angeles. They were the sworn enemy of the mob Pyru, an obscure Bloods-affiliated gang Suge Knight grew up with. One of the Crips members enlisted, Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, recalled that Puffy allegedly wanted more than just protection for Biggie. He wanted revenge on Suge. Puffy allegedly met with Keefe D. in August of 1995, and according to Keefe, Puffy offered the Crips $1 million to murder Tupac and Suge. Keefe agreed. Puffy would later deny this, maintaining that Tupac, Suge, and Death Row were the primary aggressors in the rivalry. As Biggie said, I was more in the mind frame of, keep your mouth shut, Big. If you feed into it, it's going to do nothing but escalate. But the coastal tensions surged, even without Biggie and Tupac. In September of 1995, producer Jermaine Dupree threw a birthday bash in Atlanta, Georgia. Tupac was still in jail, and Biggie opted not to go, but Suge, Puffy, and their entourages attended Dupree's after-party. Outside the club, one of Suge's consorts, 26-year-old Big Jake Robles, got into an argument. It escalated, and Robles was fatally shot. It was the first death linked to the East Coast-West Coast feud, but it wouldn't be the last. Coming up, the rap rivalry claims even more lives. Now back to the story. Throughout the mid-90s, the East Coast-West Coast rap rivalry grew more intense. Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls had gone from good friends to bitter rivals, epitomizing a larger coastal feud over the rap genre. Even with Tupac in jail, the dispute continued to spiral out of control. And in September of 1995, an employee of Death Row Records in L.A., 26-year-old Big Jake Robles, was fatally shot. Multiple witnesses blamed the shooting on the bodyguard of Biggie's producer, Sean Puffy Combs. And while an arrest was never made, Tupac's producer at Death Row Records, Suge Knight, was quick to believe the story. Before the conflict intensified even further, Puffy offered to work things out with Suge. He sent a representative to meet with Suge on his behalf, but Suge said no. He wanted to settle it on the streets. Tupac, Biggie, Puffy, and Suge weren't the only ones participating in the drama. Later that month, West Coast rapper Snoop Dogg appeared to blast Bad Boy Entertainment in his group song, New York, New York. Snoop sings the chorus, New York, New York, big city of dreams, and everything in New York ain't always what it seems. Snoop even traveled to the East Coast to make a music video, but the set in Brooklyn was interrupted by a drive-by shooting. Luckily, no one was wounded, but Snoop firmly believed Biggie organized the hit. Snoop got his own subtle revenge in the final cut of the music video, where a giant version of himself kicks down a skyscraper. The East Coast took easy offense. Soon, the feud involved an artist who wasn't even with New York's Bad Boy label or L.A.'s Death Row. In late 1995, rapper LL Cool J released a remix of Biggie's track, Who Shot Ya?, titling it, I Shot Ya. Tupac heard the song in prison. He had already believed that Biggie's original track was an insult, 
and now LL Cool J's remix reinforced it. Rapper Keith Murray, who featured in LL's track, would later deny the track had anything to do with Tupac. Still, no matter how many other artists got involved, Tupac and Biggie remained at the forefront of the feud. Then, in October 1995, Suge posted Tupac's bail, and the 24-year-old was released from prison pending judicial appeal. He immediately signed with Suge's label, Death Row Records, and the pair headed to the studio to go on the attack through Tupac's music. The rapper was more furious than ever about the shooting and Biggie's alleged betrayal. What's more, he was angered about how the public perceived him in light of the feud and his recent prison sentence. As he told one interviewer, I got shot five times and I got crucified in the media. Those feelings inspired the title of Tupac's unapologetic fourth album, All Eyes on Me. He released the album's first single, California Love, in December 1995. The track was an instant hit, with artists and fans alike interpreting the lyrics as a thinly-veiled taunt to the East Coast rappers. The full album was released in February 1996. One month later, Tupac and Biggie found themselves in the same room at the Soul Train Awards in Los Angeles. When it came time for the best R&B or rap song, Biggie won for One More Chance, a hit single he'd recorded with his wife, Faith Evans. The crowd erupted in boos as Biggie and his entourage strolled up to the stage. After the show, Biggie went outside to wait for his ride. A black Hummer drove up and rolled down its window. Tupac was inside. It was the first time the two of them had been face-to-face since the Quad Studios shooting two years earlier. And this time, Tupac shouted obscenities at his rival. For the first time, Biggie saw the anger in Tupac's eyes, barely recognizing his old friend. The tension escalated when a member of Death Row joined in, yelling, Let's settle this now. Immediately, both sides drew their guns. Fortunately, another group stepped in and defused the situation. But Tupac's anger towards Biggie and Puffy persisted. A few months later, on June 4, 1996, Tupac referred to the feud in his rage-fueled diss track, Hit Him Up. In the lyrics, Tupac threatened the lives of everyone who worked at Bad Boy. Most shocking of all, he claimed to have had an affair with Biggie's wife, Faith. Faith was pregnant at the time, and she and Tupac had recently recorded a song together. But she vehemently denied having an affair. Biggie was the baby's father. Biggie later remarked that he didn't take the track too personally, and he certainly didn't believe Tupac had slept with his wife. He said the lyrics were too disrespectful to be plausible. As for responding through his music, Biggie coolly said diss tracks weren't his style. But apparently, he couldn't help himself. A few weeks later, Biggie spat a verse in Jay-Z's track, Brooklyn's Finest. He seemingly mocked Tupac for the supposed affair with Faith, saying, if they had twins, she'd probably have two Pacs. Other bad boy rappers joined in, including Lil' Kim and Junior Mafia, who released their own diss tracks against Tupac. Meanwhile, fans were engrossed in the drama. They flocked to buy albums, propelling Tupac's hit em up to considerable radio airplay. The song hit number one on the Hot 100. 
Still, many critics thought the profanity lace track was unhinged, and several death row artists shared the same opinion, especially when Tupac tried to persuade them to join the feud. When Tupac asked death row rapper The Lady of Rage to diss East Coast rappers Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown, she said no. And death row co-founder Dr. Dre soon left the label, tired of witnessing daily fights inside the studio and wanting to branch out with his own label, Aftermath Entertainment. Even Snoop Dogg wanted out. And on September 4th, 1996, he took to the radio to express his thoughts, praising both Biggie and Puffy as artists. For Suge Knight, this was unacceptable. The next day, he stripped Snoop Dogg of all his security on a private flight to L.A. Tupac and his loyal entourage boarded the plane after Snoop, who spent the rest of the flight fearfully clutching a knife under his blanket. Luckily, he arrived unscathed. Only a few days later, on September 7th, Suge and Tupac made their fateful trip to Las Vegas. That night, Tupac debuted a new song at his friend Mike Tyson's boxing match at the MGM Grand. After the fight, he and Suge met up with their entourage outside of the venue. As they were talking, a member of the Bloods informed Tupac that his death row chain had been stolen a few weeks ago, and he had just spotted the guy who did it. Tupac immediately ran off to find the alleged culprit, a Southside Compton Crip named Orlando Baby Lane Anderson. Tupac found Anderson and punched him in the face. Then, Suge and the Death Row crew joined in, kicking and stomping on him until security intervened. Back at his hotel, Tupac met with his girlfriend, Kidada Jones. He refused to let her accompany him to Suge's Club 662, explaining the Crips might be out for revenge. And he might have been right. Minutes later, at 11.15 p.m., he and Suge were gunned down by unknown assailants in a white Cadillac. Suge suffered a graze wound from bullet fragments, but Tupac had been shot four times in his arm, thigh, and chest. The rapper's life hung in the balance for six days, but on September 13, 1996, Tupac succumbed to his injuries. To this day, no one knows for sure who his murderers were. The public, though, had its theories. Some people speculated the Crips were responsible. Others even believed Tupac faked his own death to exit the spotlight. Of course, there were those who blamed Biggie and Puffy. As a whole, the public was quick to connect Tupac's death to the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. Many fans, artists, and producers alike felt things had gone too far. And so, on February 12, 1997, an official East Coast-West Coast truce finally occurred. Puffy and Snoop shocked fans by standing together on the set of The Steve Harvey Show. Harvey had brought the two rappers together to make an announcement during a press conference before the taping. Puffy told the media and the fans to let it go. And Snoop echoed this sentiment, stating he hoped to set a good example to younger rap fans. He said, They look up to us and they want something positive to look forward to and something to live for. It was as if a treaty had been signed. Snoop and Puffy shook hands as the cameras flashed, capturing this historic moment. But the rivalry hadn't taken its final toll. 
When Biggie had heard about Tupac's death, he was reportedly upset. The 24-year-old rapper called his estranged wife, Faith Evans, and cried. Not long afterwards, Biggie fell on hard times. He was arrested for possession of drugs, then injured in a car accident. These events, coupled with Tupac's death, caused Biggie to take stock of his life. More than anything, he wanted to make peace with the West Coast. Biggie decided to name his forthcoming album Life After Death, which he said partly referred to Tupac's passing. The double record included a song called Going Back to Cali, paying tribute to West Coast hip-hop. And in February of 1997, around the time of Puffy and Snoop's press conference, Biggie decided to take it one step further, traveling to Los Angeles for his album's release. Many people in the hip-hop community thought it was too soon for Biggie to enter enemy territory, even though Suge was currently in jail for a parole violation. But Biggie did it anyway, believing his good intentions would keep him safe. And for a while, it seemed that way. Biggie shot his music video for his single, Hypnotize, and he dreamed of exploring an acting career, much like his old friend Tupac had. Still, he couldn't help but feel unsettled. It didn't help when on March 7, 1997, Biggie again received boos from some of the audience at that year's Soul Train Awards. Clearly, the truce hadn't alleviated the ill feelings towards him or his possible involvement in Tupac's murder. But Biggie was undeterred. It was supposed to be his last night in Los Angeles, but he convinced Puffy to change his plans so he could network at the award show's after-party the following evening, March 8th. All was going well until the fire marshal came to shut the party down. Biggie decided to call it a day and head back to his hotel. He and Puffy got into separate cars with their entourages. Biggie settled inside and blasted his forthcoming album as the vehicles trailed each other through L.A. traffic. The rest seemed like a page out of Tupac's nightmare. Biggie's car was separated from Puffy's by a red light. As they waited, a dark-colored Chevy Impala pulled up next to Biggie's window. The assailant fired five or six shots from a 9mm pistol, hitting Biggie four times. Biggie was rushed to the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, but it was no use. At 1.15 a.m., the notorious B.I.G. was dead. Like Tupac, Biggie's murder remains unsolved. And both deaths left a permanent mark on the music industry, with fans and artists wondering why. Was it all worth it? Sure, they'd enjoyed the drama of the rivalry, but the tragedy was too much. Without its two main rappers, the East Coast versus West Coast rivalry persisted a little while longer, but it existed mainly on diss tracks. In 1999, Dr. Dre told Rolling Stone magazine that he was shocked to hear his song playing on the radio in New York City. It marked evident progress between the two coasts. Dre said, There's a lot of people on the West Coast that still don't get along with the East Coast and vice versa. At least it's a much smaller percentage now. We are building bridges out here. In the years since, more rivalries have emerged, not only in rap, but in hip-hop and pop music. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift, Drake and Meek Mill, Nicki Minaj and Remy Ma, 
It's become embraced as a tradition that keeps artists accountable and fans engaged. But these music rivalries are just that. They primarily exist inside of lyrics and not outside, at least rarely to the tragic scale of Tupac and Biggie. And for the time being, the music industry has taken this lesson to heart. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we're delving into the dark side of 90s pop music. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>